Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast today. This is episode number 289, and we're talking about water in the backcountry. Obviously, if you are heading into a backcountry, especially on an extended hunt, water becomes important to you to survive in the backcountry. And as hunters, many of us are familiar with and have preferences for different types of water treatment. And some of us, depending on where we are, may not treat water at all and just drink straight from natural sources. We talk about those topics and understand the risks of waterborne illness, the effectiveness of different treatment methods, and much more. Our guest today is Dr. Vincent Hill. He is the chief of the Waterborne Disease Prevention Branch for the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. So Vincent is an expert all about waterborne disease and really can help inform us much more than a lot of the basic speak out there. So it's easy to go online and get uh, resources or hear from product manufacturers about their marketing and their water treatment. But we kind of wanted to go deeper than that and really understand what the risks are um, and then how effective the different treatment methods may be. So as you'll hear, uh, Vince and the CDC, they do not discuss specific products, but we do discuss methods. So we'll talk about filtration versus purification. We will talk about chemical treatment versus uh, filtration. So we get into a lot that's going to help you and also help you understand um, the risks that are there if you choose to not treat certain water sources. And we even discuss like where are the risks really so if you evaluate a water source where is the probability um, obviously get into things like bacteria versus viruses and much more so this is a fun deep dive uh, honestly i learned a ton i am not an even close to an expert in this topic so it was really i just soaked everything up in this episode and i hope you do the same before we get into that just want to thank you guys as always for tuning in if you want to uh, hear previous episodes or go find previous episodes by topic, be sure to hit the podcast archive link that is in the show description, or you can head straight to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. There you will find hundreds and hundreds of podcast episodes. You can browse those episodes by category. You can search by keyword and more. So check that out if you maybe have an idea or looking for a certain topic. We probably have a podcast about it. Uh, if we don't, or if you just want to hear something else, always email us. Just send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'd love to hear your idea, question, or suggestion for a future show. Finally, if you haven't yet, go ahead and hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. But right now, let's dive into this conversation with Dr. Vincent Hill. Well, Vince, welcome to the Hunt's Backcountry Podcast. Um, we are really excited to have you on. Steve, this was a, a podcast that you and I both were kind of talking about in the field, really, um, on a recent hike that we were doing and wanted to talk about really all the topics related to filtering water, natural water sources, what are the risks and assessing those risks and uh, yeah, dive into this. So to begin this conversation, uh, Vince, if you can lay out some background and context for who you are, what your background is, what your role is, and uh, thankfully why we were able to get you on the show today as an expert in these matters. 
Sure. Great. Uh, glad, glad to be with you. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm the uh, chief of the Waterborne Disease Prevention Branch uh, at CDC uh, in the Division of Foodborne, Waterborne, and Environmental Diseases. Um, so my background in, you know, training is in environmental sciences, microbiology, and engineering. I'm an environmental engineer um, by, by, by training, professional engineer. Um, and uh, I worked at CDC for 18 years. Um, uh, having led our branch's environmental microbiology laboratory um, for more than a for more than a decade, and I now oversee our programs, you know, kind of larger program in waterborne disease and outbreak surveillance, prevention, and control activities. That includes, you know, uh, you know, uh, putting out guidance and uh, about how to make water safe and treatment and disinfection. Awesome, very good. Yes. Yeah, um, you know, the more I look at this topic, I'm obviously coming from a background as an outdoorsman, hunter, thinking about natural water sources. But even as I was doing research, I realized, you know, there's more to treatment and more needs for filtration, purification, you know, when it comes to international travel. Obviously, I'm sure most folks have experienced there could be uh, issues with local municipality water that sometimes need to be boiled. Obviously, there's cases for natural disasters so it's uh i almost forgot that there's a lot more about this topic in terms of water contamination and treatment than my context of being an outdoorsman and a hunter um this is a really broad question but just to lay some of the groundwork what are the risks of drinking unfiltered or untreated water kind of specifically from a natural source obviously by a natural source i mean you know, a lake, a river, a stream, a trickle, a spring, um, kind of any natural source of water in the outdoors. What are what really are the risks to lay that groundwork? Another question to add to that, does it vary or if we're talking about the mountains in the United States versus, you know, if you're in, you know, another country or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so I think, you know, What's important to remember is there are many sources of water contamination. So those include, you know, kind of naturally occurring sources like um, there are toxins that can be in the environment from like cyanobacterial toxins, harmful algal blooms, you know, that kind of those kind of colored algal uh, blooms, you know, that, that might, you know, you might see quite often in ponds and lakes, but, you know, can, can occur in different kinds of natural water bodies. So, you, so you've got things like that. You've got naturally occurring chemicals, you know, just that come from the ground, right? The geology in your local landscape, et cetera, that can have things like arsenic and fluoride and things like that. So that's the kind of naturally occurring things that are out there. But they're also, you know, local land use practices, right? So depending on where you are, um, you know, there could be, uh, you know, human or animal activities that could, you know, farming, et cetera. You can have fertilizers and pesticides. There could be microbial contaminants, from, you know, from farms and things like that. Of course, there's wildlife. We all think about, you know, birds and other wild animals that are out there that, of course, are, uh, you know, defecating in the environment, et cetera. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that's, that, that's a potential source. Um, and then there are other, you know, kind of depending, I, I, we're generally talking about backcountry settings, right? So, so maybe not so much in areas where there's a lot of human development and housing and community. But if you are in areas like that, then you have to be concerned about, you know, potentially, you know, sewer systems. But even if you're in more remote areas where there are houses, they might be on septic. And so septic systems can be a source of contaminants to, uh, to local water bodies. Mm. And then you, we kind of touched on it there. There's, you know, natural elements and then there's, you know, animal and human interaction 
Water can be contaminated with bacteria, viruses, or maybe even other forms that I'm unaware. I just know that that basic understanding of you know bacteria and viruses from looking at filtration and purification systems and just seeing those options talk about you know this is effective against bacteria and or viruses down to certain levels. But what are I guess the differences? in water that's contaminated with a bacteria and a virus. Is that going to give you two different experiences then if you're exposed that have different systems and timelines or what, you know, what is the difference there and, and kind of in a practical level? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, certainly you're drinking uh, untreated or contaminated water can, incre- you know, increase the risk of developing certain infectious diseases. You, you, you kind of referred to a couple you know, parasites and, or, or viruses and bacteria. So some of these germs people might be familiar with are, you know, germs like Cryptosporidium, Giardia, Shigella, Norovirus, et cetera. So, so those can be in, in water, whether it's from human activity, from animals, et cetera. So drinking it, you know, uh, or using it for cooking, washing food, preparing, preparing drinks, or even brushing your teeth, you know, can, can lead to uh, illnesses, you know, sick, being sick with diarrhea, vomiting, or stomach pain. So it's really, you know, it's really important to try to understand a little bit more about the differences between those pathogens. Um, so, um, yeah, I, if you'd like, I can kind of talk a little bit about the different kinds of pathogen classes. Would that be helpful? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Oh, great. Uh, so I think if we think about, so I think about three kind of large classes of, of pathogens. So parasites like Cryptosporidium and Giardia, bacteria like E. coli or Salmonella, or viruses like norovirus. Um, so what's really good, especially if you're thinking about uh, filtration or disinfection of, of water when you're out in backcountry settings. Um, so parasites are the largest of those, th- those kind of classes of pathogens. So they're larger than bacteria and viruses. Um, you know, about four to 14 microns in size. And so if you know your filter ratings and such, you'll know that that's larger than um, kind of those cyst, you know, those, those uh, filters that are rated uh, like NSF ratings, uh, 53 or 58, you know, they'll have a, probably a one micron filter. So those parasites are larger than that, that filter size, so they get filtered out. Um, and so it's pretty easy to, to find filters that are, can remove parasites. Um, when we think about disinfectant chemicals like chlorine or iodine, um, then um, it's really important. Some of these parasites are actually resistant or tolerant to chemical disinfectants, especially cryptosporidium. So pretty much you can't find a chemical disinfectant like chlorine and iodine that is, uh, that is effective against cryptosporidium. Chlorine, di- chlorine dioxide can be effective for crypto. Uh, and then we think about Giardia, it's got these chemical disinfectants have moderate effectiveness against them. So that's a, that's a big difference between, say, parasites and viruses and bacteria, where chemical disinfectants are pretty, pretty effective against bacteria and viruses. So the parasites, a little less so. So really rely on filtration for making water safe for the parasites. And we think of chemical disinfection being pretty effective against viruses and bacteria. That's largely also uh, because bacteria and viruses are smaller than, uh, than the parasites. So bacteria are, you know, 0.3 to two microns, right? So if using a one micron filter, you might have bacteria that can get through that uh, filter and pass, pass through. Certainly viruses, which are a hundred times, you know, 10 to a hundred times smaller than bacteria, even they're going to go through 
just about any water filter that's out there that's portable water filter. Although we'll probably talk about maybe purification water filters. I think there's some newer ones that are on the market that um, may, you know, may make claims against viruses. Um, but uh, so, so I think that's the big, the, the big kind of uh, hallmark between the, these different kinds of parasite classes are size of the, of the, of the path, pathogen. So viruses being much, much smaller than uh, bacteria and, and then bacteria also then smaller than parasites. And then uh, for chemical disinfection, generally effective against bacteria and paras uh, and sorry, uh, bacteria and viruses and, and less effective or not effective against many of the parasites. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely take a, a kind of a deeper comparison and talk about the different treatment and filtration options here in a bit. In terms of, say, you are infected in some way, symptoms, timing of those symptoms, the treatment that may or may not be required as a follow up to that. Are there differences there between you know you have this bacteria or this virus? Are there common, you know, symptoms and experiences if you were to um, essentially ingest that infected water? Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. So, you know, the most commonly reported symptoms of waterborne illness are diarrhea, vomiting, stomach cramps, and fever. Um, but there are other symptoms that you, you can you can have uh, from uh, from waterborne illnesses, and those include skin problems. Uh, so like rashes, um, wound infections, and maybe we'll talk more about that if, if people, you know, are, are going into water with open wounds or cuts that aren't covered by a waterproof bandage, you know, we, wound infections are, are a concern as well. Um, ear problems like swimmer's ear, uh, um, respiratory problems like pneumonia, eye problems like keratitis, especially people who wear contact lenses. And if they get untreated or unsafe water in their eyes and they have contact lenses, you can get infections that way. So we mostly think about gastrointestinal illnesses, so diarrhea, vomiting, et cetera, but there are broader and other kinds of uh, uh, symptoms that one can uh, get. Um, as far as timing of symptoms, and we'll just focus on, you know, diarrhea, um, you know, and, and vomiting, kind of those gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, uh, so the waterborne disease symptoms for viruses and bacteria usually begin within 12 to 48 hours. And that's kind of, it's pretty general, but say, you know, pretty short time. So 12 to 48 hours. Um, but the symptoms may take longer for waterborne parasitic diseases. So which often begin maybe one to two weeks after becoming infected. Um, and then if there's some kind of chemical or toxin exposure, those can happen very rapidly within hours. Um, so, so those far, as far as symptoms goes, there's, there's a little bit of a range there, depending on what, what you're, um, what you might be sick with. Interesting. So if someone's on, let's say, you know, a backcountry hunt, uh, they begin to experience such symptoms. It happens for maybe two days, let's say, is this something they need to seek treatment for kind of as soon as possible? Is this the system kind of just it'll flush you out, right? There's no, there's no need to then go uh, visit a doctor, or get on, you know, any medication or antibiotics, or what would be recommended protocol and action to take if you were to experience systems that you think may be from waterborne illness? Um, yeah, so first I'll just note that, you know, I'm an environmental engineer and environmental microbiologist and not a, not a physician or medical <laughs> uh, 
professional. So, so, but in general, so I can talk in, in general terms. Uh, so, you know, in general, most waterborne diseases are self-limiting, right? So, so they kind of resolve on their, on their own, you know? Um, so, you know, without, without antibiotic treatment or other kinds of you know, treatment. Um, so one thing to note though, because most waterborne infections can cause diarrhea and vomiting. And so, and thus, you know, loss of fluids, sometimes lots of fluids, it's really important for people experiencing those kinds of symptoms to drink lots of fluids to stay hydrated, right? So that's really critical uh, if you're out, you know, you just staying hydrated is really, really important uh, if you're experiencing those symptoms. Um, you know, there are, um, you know, medications um, like antibiotics for bacterial infections. Um, but, you know, for those, you know, it's really consulting a doctor is, is really important. If you're having, if people are having severe symptoms, and want to discuss treatment options. They're really not. They're not always indicated um, to 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 um, to you know to to do a, a medication like that. Yeah. Are there any risks that you're aware of for longer term issues? So you know, weeks or months or years later, potentially someone could get sick from a waterborne illness and continue to you know fight that or have symptoms on a prolonged basis. Right. So, you know, most waterborne infections, you know, we just talked about them being self-limiting, so they can resolve within several days to a week, uh, particularly for viral and bacterial infections. Uh, but they might last for one to two weeks, you know, for these parasitic infections. Um, however, you know, there are some diseases that can last longer, for, particularly for people with underlying health conditions. Um, you know, one, one, um, pretty well-known uh, waterborne disease. So from Giardia, right? So giardiasis um, can last for two to six weeks. So can be longer term than that one to two weeks, um, but also can in some people result in long-term complications such as reactive arthritis, irritable bowel syndrome and recurring diarrhea that can last for years. So uh, it's not common, uh, but there are some waterborne infections that can cause long-term issues for people. Hmm. So this is a million-dollar question. <laughs> um, is it ever safe to drink unfiltered water from a natural source in the wilderness? Uh, and when may it be more probable or more safe than other times? And I know we can get into a lot of scenarios, but would you... I don't know, I don't know if I want to say personally, but... Um, yeah. Is it ever safe? Is there instances where you would be like, you know, if you're in this location in these conditions with this type of water source, you're probably fine. Or is the answer, it is simple enough to always filter or treat water. You should just absolutely always do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's, there's a, there's a logic to that where people go, Hey, you know, it, it doesn't look you know, I'm, I'm in a certain place, whatever, and this is supposed to be pristine and it doesn't look contaminated, so it must be safe, et cetera. But, you know, I think in, in general for us, you know, environmental contaminants, it's just, you know, can be everywhere. Um, and, and so we always recommend that people have a plan for making water safe um, to drink uh, while they're in wilderness or backcountry settings. I mean, while the water flowing in streams and rivers, you know, backcountry settings may look pure, you know, so nice crystal clear, um, it can still be contaminated with, you know, bacteria, viruses, parasites, or other contaminants. You just can't see them. Um, that um, And so that's, I mean, I guess the same logic applies if you're in high altitude areas with snow melt, you know, where you can melt snow and things like that. So, you know, it may look pure, 
but you, you can't be certain that it doesn't contain contaminants. So I would say anyone traveling and whether there's a high altitude areas or other kind of pristine environments, you know, should just always have water disinfection materials with them. It's just, it's just good practice to, 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 to be prepared um, in that, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of different, you know, contexts, um, you know, we, Steve and I had both been on a trip to Alaska, for example, where we are literally a hundred plus miles away from a road and from a town and from anything. But there's to me two very distinct differences in water sources. One, which was, you know, essentially runoff from a high mountain, which I didn't filter at times. And another was essentially the camp location, which had also been used prior in the season by a different group of hunters which was near a lake and in this remote setting, you know, that the essentially bathroom for these hunters and people uh, living near this lake is going to be nearby that lake. And so I'm like, even though you are vastly in this wilderness and away from people, there's to me two vastly different perspectives on water sources. When you're looking at a lake that people have been essentially living at, and then a stream that may only be, a half a mile away that's coming from a high mountain runoff, right? So it's mm-hmm. always interesting to think about the very specific kind of scenarios. Um, you know, one, and again, I don't know that this is a, a question you can say with any certainty, but I just kind of like to hear your thoughts on it. This, this came in mind on a recent trip that we were on where we started at a lower elevation and we're essentially hiking near a river. Um, and then later in the trip, a couple of days later, we are at a much higher elevation, much more remote location even. And we're literally looking at, you know, both springs as well as true snowmelt runoff, like straight from the source. Is there any, to me, I've always looked at larger sources of water as having a higher probability of contamination simply because I know that that bigger source of water is essentially being collected from higher probabilities in my mind of contamination upstream. But then I also think about the inverse of that. And I'm like, well, maybe the, this larger source of water, if it did have a contaminant because the water source is so large, it's been dispersed, right? So you're to not use a scientific term, I don't know if this is correct, but your parts per million of an infection is going to be vastly dispersed in this larger body of water, even a flowing water like a river compared to you take this high mountain, small stream near the source. I would assume there's less probability of contaminants, but it's also not as call it diluted. Right. Um, so is there anything I said in there that actually makes sense or is it all just, you know, a hunter, not thinking correctly. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, and it, it kind of gets at this idea of uh, sort of absolute risk versus relative risk. So in a, in a, in a sort of absolute risk set um, concept, you know, there, there's there's no natural water source that you can say is 100% safe to drink without, without water treatment, right? So there's always a risk from drinking untreated natural water. So that's sort of an absolute sense, but in a, you know, in a relative risk sense, you know, I'd say, you know, as you just described, it's generally true that larger streams and rivers drain a larger watershed. 
uh, and therefore are impacted by a greater area of potential contamination sources. Um, so, so that's you know, that that's clearly from a relative risk perspective, right? But I, I just don't you can't really depend on that for assessing the risk of, of drinking the water without treatment. Um, so, you know, what, so that, that's kind of the way I think of it from a kind of a health risk perspective. One thing, one aspect of it though, that I, I do think is also important for, for even for just water treatment and how effective it can be is the lower quality downstream, you know, water sources may present a greater challenge for effective water treatment. So, you know, if they've got more particles in them or you know, kind of cloudier water or colored water, they can make disinfection um, uh, less effective or more challenging to do effectively. Um, and of course you can get, you know, filter clogging and things like that, that, that can occur. But um, yeah, so, so I, I hear what you say about, you know, from a relative risk perspective, I mean, I'd say, you know, for us, you, you just can't depend on, you know, making an assessment of that and saying, okay, I'm safe here because unless you make it safe, you can't depend on it being safe. But, but I, but I do get it that, you know, if you're really way out there, you have fewer sources of contamination um, than if you were in other areas with more animal activity or more human activity, certainly. Yeah. Okay. When it comes to bacteria as a risk, are there certain environmental conditions that um, can either lead to bacteria growth or um, reduce the risk of bacteria as a contaminant, such as freezing. Um, if we, you know, again, going back to this recent hike, as we gained elevation, we were snowshoeing, uh, it was negative two that night. Like, is there simply less risk of bacteria as a contaminant in those conditions where compare that with, you know, a higher temperature summer environment, for example? Mm -hmm. um, so that also is an interesting question. It kind of gets back to one of your previous questions about the differences between bacteria and maybe viruses or parasites or other, other pathogens. Um, one, one thing that's important with, for bacteria is that they can grow um, under the right conditions in the environment, um, meaning on their own uh, versus viruses and parasites which really they need a human or an animal host to reproduce it, right? So, but but uh, bacteria can you know can grow in the environment. So so generally speaking, bacteria can grow readily in conditions where there are enough nutrients and warm temperatures, right, to encourage their growth. Um, bacteria form uh, biofilms uh, or slime layers on wetted surfaces, um, and you know those biofilms can grow thicker in areas. Uh, certainly where there's warm water, but also where there's water stagnation. Um, so versus kind of a rapidly flowing um, uh, stream or, or creek versus in a stagnant area. Um, however, one, one thing that's really important to, to, to keep in mind, though, is that most bacteria that cause gastrointestinal illness, so your salmonellas and your um, E. coli's and such, they don't really grow um, in typical environmental conditions. Because uh, they've evolved uh, to reproduce in the guts of you know humans and animals, so so we're talking about enteric bacteria, which really don't produce and reproduce in the environment. So they they could be out there certainly, but their you know their their levels are you know are only decreasing you know, after you know after whatever the contamination is that that occurred. But but other environmental bacteria can grow under those kinds of conditions that you're you're kind of asking about. Um, so when we're thinking about, you know, what conditions might affect or, you know, lead to those bacteria um, growing or, or dying, um, 
So in, in general, um, there, there are no environmental conditions that you can rely on that impact the safety of the water, meaning like cold or freezing temperatures, for example. Um, you know, freezing and thawing can damage bacteria, but it's, it's really not a process that can be relied on to say that the water or ice or snow is safe to consume without treatment. Uh, the flip side of that, though, is that warm weather and warm water conditions are a risk factor for exposure to bacteria or even toxins from algae, for example, that, you know, these things that can grow in the environment and grow more to bigger numbers when, when, the, when the conditions are warm. Hmm. Man, there's so much to this. I like it. I'm learning <laughs> for sure. So let, let's begin to talk about uh, some treatment options. Um, to, first, from a super high level, I think we've used both of these terms, but maybe not clarified them yet. Can you speak to the differences between the ideas of filtration versus purification? Sure. Um, so um, one, one thing to note on this, um, and I, I don't know um, what how you can provide additional resources to your to your listeners. But uh, if anybody listening to this, um, we actually was a co-author on a paper that was published in 2019. Um, and, and their co-authors are Howard Backer and Robert Durlet. If you want to search for it, because I think it's open access. Uh, it's yeah, and I can, I can oh, add you, links to essentially can you like do the that? Show okay. description. Or so show maybe notes. Brian, we can follow up with that. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, and and provide and provide that because there's a ton of detail in there. All these pros and cons and, and things like that are, are in there. So okay, okay. Well, that's good to know. So so back to purification versus filtration. Um, so I, I think of um, filtration is is the is a technology um, whereby you can remove um, contaminants uh, from 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 water. Um, you know, by the water passing through the filter um, and then, you know, um, and, and being clarified or, you know, uh, or, or, or cleaned in that way. Purification is a little bit, it's a little bit uh, complicated to think of, but I, but when we just think about kind of maybe portable, you know, water um, treatment devices, um, I, I think most of them, many of them might, you know, use the term purified, meaning it's, it's free of, uh, disease-causing um, germs, um, and I and I think that would have to include viruses, bacteria, and parasites. So if you if you just have a a, a filter that is um, say a, a microfilter with a one micron you know pore size, it can remove um, uh, parasites, uh, but but may not be effective against bacteria, and certainly not effective against viruses. So you wouldn't say that water has been purified. Um, ditto if you had a a, a, a filter with a slightly smaller pore size, you know, maybe uh, 0.2 microns or something like that, that can remove bacteria and parasites, but still let viruses pass through. Then I think you'd still say that wasn't from a from a microbiological perspective not purified. Um, I think as you get closer to using these sort of modern uh, ultra filters, which have really small pore size, small pore sizes, you know, that are, that are, you know, can, can effectively remove viruses as well as the bacteria and, and parasites. I guess you could say from a microbiological perspective that that water has been purified, but it's not free of, of chemicals or, or toxins. So even that, that term is a little bit complicated in how it's, in how it's used. Okay. I'm just curious. I'm sure it's something we are going to get to here as we talk about different treatment methods. What was that phrase you just used about more modern filters? 
Yeah, um, I mean, and, and I'm no expert uh, on all the different, you know, options that are out there. Uh, as far as products, and certainly we're not we at CDC we don't we don't talk about you know product efficacy. We talk about technologies, um, but but clearly uh, even for municipal water treatment um, that have been using um, ultra filters and even reverse osmosis, which are even much smaller uh, uh, filters, the, the filtration technology is really advancing, and I think it's getting now into. Um, portable water filter options. Um, and certainly, you know, if we think about household water treatment, there are, there are new options there as well. But focusing on the portable water filters, um, I think there are more and more options that are available now that use these really small pore size. Uh, ultra filtration is a technical term that, that uh, talks about this, the size of the pore uh, that's used in the filter. So there's micro filters, which have larger pore sizes, and those are generally effective for bacteria and parasites. Uh, ultra filters are smaller pore size filters that can remove viruses. Um, the challenge with those, those with ultra filtration in general is because the, the pore sizes are smaller, right? So it takes more pressure to, to force water through the pores. Um, and um, so if you've got things in the water that can clog uh, those pores, then they can, you know, they're more apt to clog and you might have you know, lower filtration rates. You might be able to produce less water uh, per hour, let's just say with these ultra filters, although they're making advances. So, but I think that's generally kind of one of the cons with those is can you really rely on these ultra filters, these purifiers, so to speak, um, to produce enough water for you and be dependable uh, for doing that. That's why we always say, you know, I think it's always good to have a backup plan whenever you're going out. So you've got, maybe you've got a, you know, a really cool, fancy water treatment device, um, just in case it doesn't, you know, it starts failing, it starts leaking, or it gets clogged or whatever that is, and you can't clear it by, by back flushing it, is to have some simple water treatment products with you, you know, tablets or drops or whatever to use in a pinch. I think it's always good to have a backup plan. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about filters here in a minute. Um, I did kind of want to start... Um, as we talk about different options with what you just mentioned, kind of chemical treatments. Um, obviously there's things like iodine, chlorine, bleach. Uh, there's, uh, what, how do I want to put this branded, um, you know, chemicals essentially, um, aquamira, things like that. Obviously the active ingredients are going to be common amongst other sources, but what would you, if we just talk about pros and cons and effectiveness, if we lump chemical treatments together as a whole, for me personally, there's been kind of two potential cons. One is time, because some of these, you know, to be fully effective, take time. And then two is potential side effects of um, taste in the water. Um, but yeah, if you could just kind of enlighten us on anything we would want to know, need to know about chemical treatments as a whole, and obviously feel free to dive into any of the specific treatments, uh, or chemicals that you feel are, you know, more or less effective or have different, uh, advantages. Sure. Thanks. Uh, so in, in a broad sense, chemical disinfection can be really effective, uh, for killing most pathogens in water. And so I, uh, mentioned earlier about, you know, some of the parasites, especially cryptosporidium, which is, you know, well known to be tolerant to many of these common chemical disinfectants like 
chlorine and iodine. Um, so, uh, and Jardia, the some, you know, only moderate effectiveness. Uh, but in general, though, uh, as, a, as a broad, you know, uh, kind of class, chemical disinfection can be very effective. Um, however, as you noted, contact time, disinfecting concentration, um, even some things like water temperature and certainly water turbidity uh, can be important factors that impact the effectiveness of chemical disinfection. Um, so, you know, so depending on those factors, you know, you might not be able to say, I've, you know, it's been a hundred percent or near, you know, high, highly effective, uh, for, for, uh, for treating the water, depending on what that water, uh, looks like. Um, but I would say in general, uh, some of these products and I, you know, we, we were focusing on these, they're, they're a chemical class called halogens. So chlorine, iodine, et cetera, are, you know, have, have those uh, efficacy, but maybe a, a little bit of an issue there with, with some of the parasites. Chlorine dioxide is another chemical disinfectant, maybe more recently coming on to the, um, onto the market, so to speak. Um, and and there's, a, there's some good data on chlorine dioxide as being more broadly effective, even against the parasites. So, so that's, that's good to have that as an option. Uh, not always necessary, necessary you know, to, to always bring chlorine dioxide versus some of these other chemical disinfectants, but, uh, but it's good to know that there's an option there as well with that. But um, uh, I think, you know, I, I've heard a lot, or we, we, we hear it all the time, you know, depending on the chemical disinfectant you're using and the, the water quality, et cetera, that there are some issues, you know, with, with taste or odor, with with using them, so but I think following the manufacturer's guidance with those can can hopefully limit some of that those issues with um, kind of aesthetics. Hmm. Are um, so are those products essentially tested or certified in any certain way? And what, I'm not sure what branch that may fall under, but as an example, you know, you you take certain foods that are uh, have to go under FDA regulations, but then you can take supplements which are not under FDA regulations. So analogous to that, are these water treatment chemicals um, under any sort of regulatory agency or approval or anything like that to be as effective as essentially their marketing claims to be? Yeah, so I, I, I in, in general, water treatment products um, fall under you know regulatory oversight um, for EPA, um, and so EPA has a whole program on um, on chemi basically chemical disinfectants uh, for for water as well as other other areas, other applications as well. Um, and then you know if we're if we're thinking about you know bottled water, I know we're not focusing on bottled water here, but but that the quality of bottled water uh, as a product falls under FDA um, um, regulatory oversight. Okay, gotcha. So as you mentioned, you you know from your perspective, talk about technologies, not specific products. Um, moving on from chemicals, what about the technology of ultraviolet treatment? Um, that's become more and more uh, a popular option um, for backpackers and hunters and what have you over the last few years. Um, and just curious, kind of from your perspective, your take, again, just pros and cons, effectiveness, things to know as it comes to ultraviolet. So, yeah, so ultraviolet light or UV light, um, can be used as a pathogen reduction method against um, many microorganisms, you know, that can be in water. Um, so uh, the technology might require pre-filtering in, in some instances, since its effectiveness is really impacted by water turbidity. 
So that can be, you know, cloudiness because of part of particles or just, you know, color of the water. So anything that can get in the way of those, you know, UV uh, light, um, you know, beams from, from reaching the, the microbes is a good way of thinking about it. Um, so, and there are other factors, um, of, of course, you know, making sure there's enough, you know, power delivery to it. So you got enough dose um, going into the water and contact time. All these disinfectants require, you know, the right amount of contact time, whether it's chemical disinfectants or UV light um, to achieve, you know, math maximum pathogen reduction. Um, so I think, you know, UV uh, can be an effective method uh, for pathogen, you know, reduction in water, water disinfection in backcountry water settings. Um, and, but it's always important and that, you know, clearly these, these, these products that you can, you can buy will come with manufacturer's instructions. So it's really important for people to familiarize themselves on the proper um, use um, and procedures for using these products. Okay. And in terms of filtration, I think, you know, what Steve and I have the most experience with uh, will probably fall under what you're describing earlier, one of the um, like kind of ultra filtration options. Um, take, for example, the Sawyer Squeeze filter or um, something like the Kdn, um filters that exists. And these could be um, inline filters, pump style filters, things like that. But for, just as an example, the Sawyer filter claims to uh, be able to filter down to 0.1 microns in size. So that would make it fall under that clarif the classification you are talking about earlier of an ultra filter. Is that correct? So not quite. That's right on the edge. And I, there's no, and there's no body that's going to say, say ah, that you can call that an ultra filter or not. Because um, 0.1 microns is still a larger pore size than many viruses that we'd be concerned about in water. So I, I think, I, I think, Classically, then you'd, you'd think of an ultra filter as something that has maybe a, a 0 0.02 uh, micron, uh, yeah, or 0 0.01 or something like that. So a bit smaller to make sure that they get those viruses. Uh, but a 0.1 micron filter, that's going to be effective uh, for removing bacteria and certainly parasites. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, one thing I just noticed, and I'm not, you know, trying to throw Sawyer on the bus. I've used them extensively with good results, but it also is interesting as I was just looking up to kind of verify what the micron level is. It, uh, and I don't know if this is me overanalyzing the the lawyer speak here, but it says the membrane is capable of filtering out filtering out particles down to 0.1 microns. Uh, the way that that was phrased of like, yeah, it's capable, you know, it's like, well, is it consistent? Is it going to do it all the time? Or is it just possible? You know, as interesting. You know what that might be, um, uh, sorry to jump in, but what that might be a reference to, and it's probably too technical. So they're not putting it in these terms on their, on their product labels or descriptive specs um, is the, the, the difference here between an absolute filter uh, and a nominal uh, filter. So a nominal filter has got a, a, the filter media, whatever, whatever it is, uh, has got basically different size pores. You know, it's, it's a range of pore size. So just the way it's manufactured, it's got some, some really, really small ones and some that are a little larger, et cetera, et cetera. And so on average, it's going to remove a certain size particle and with a, some kind of, uh, you know, efficiency. And I don't exactly know what the requirements are, 90% efficiency or whatever to, to claim that pore size. Um, so, but that's a nominal pore size or, 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 or you know, a filtration efficacy. An absolute filter is kind of like your window screen, you know, on your, on your, you know, on a, on a window, which like all the pores are exactly the same, same size. 
And so they're all going to be equally effective for removing particles that are larger than F4. So a 0.1 micron absolute filter, they could probably be a little bit more confident in saying it does remove particles above that versus the other way, which, which is probably because on average or, you know, in, in general, it removes particles larger than, than that 0.1. That is great to know. That makes a ton of sense. One of the... Um... One of the potential downsides are kind of things that uh, we tend to be aware of in using these types of filters in the field. Again, I'm being non-scientific here. You can fill me in or clarify. But is the issue of moisture trapped in that filter that then freezes? Water obviously expands, so potentially uh, moisture that then expands and essentially cracks or increases uh, what we were just talking about, kind of that filter size, right? And so the filter becomes less effective or damaged if water was in there and expanded and essentially um, damaged the filter in any way. Is there anything from your perspective that you're aware of kind of scientifically um, or is that something that you would personally, um, you know, would kind of verify for us? Because I see it talked about a lot. And I think even in like the literature of those filters from manufacturers, it, it speaks to it. But I'm just wondering if there's anything um, that you are aware of that can really help us clarify that as a risk or um, maybe it's more of a precaution than a true risk. Mm -hmm. So this might get into some procedures that, you know, I may not just not be familiar with kind of standard approaches for for these kinds of uh, filters that are on the market now but just from a just from a just kind of physics and biological principles uh, perspective I mean a lot of that makes sense meaning it, it clearly is you just noted a, a couple factors right if, if water stays in these filters um, and gets in these kind of nooks and crannies and into the pores and then it freezes when you know, water you know expands when it freezes and so that could you know you know, if that water has no, if that, if that frozen, you know, water and the ice has nowhere to go and expand into, then you can get cracks in the, in the filter and filter housing. I, I'm not totally sure though, about whether the pore sizes uh, would be, you know, kind of affected by that, but you can get, you know, maybe the media itself, you can get cracks in it and stuff. And the minute you, you know, you start getting cracks in your filter media, well, then you've got these huge pores uh, and these channels through your filter. And so you're not really, you know, effectively filtering like, like you should. So that's probably part of it. Um, one other aspect I would, I would think, you know, and maybe the importance of kind of clearing out water from these filters um, as much as possible uh, and bringing in kind of air, so to speak, you know, so really kind of getting the, as much of the water out as possible, especially if that, if those filters are sitting around and this, maybe this is more about storage between, you know, uh, you know, trips um, is is uh, biofilm growth, right? So if, if water stays anywhere and wets a surface for long enough, and there, you know, there's going to be probably some bacteria in there, and you can get biofilm growth, and that could lead to degradation of filters and maybe clogging and things like that that can make them uh, harder to use. So there's there's also that kind of uh, bacterial growth question uh, as well. Yeah, yeah I think I've actually sense. heard of like once you're storing like a Sawyer tomato, you do some solution really water down with bleach and then run it through just to mm -hmm. kill anything. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Steve, do you, um, do you have any more questions kind of on different treatment options, comparing those and things of that nature? No, not really. Yeah. I think we're covering it pretty well. My, my question, like when, 
w- as water's coming, uh, obviously we're talking about big streams, but obviously sometimes uh, here in Idaho, there'll be, um, uh, you just drive down the road and there's literally a, a pipe coming out of the side of the mountain, right? That's got like good drinking water. So what is, because at what point when water's coming out of the ground, is it safe? And why, why does that make it safe? Can bacteria not get in there? Is there like that? that I guess that's where I'm kind of confused, right? Of clearly there's like, you know, Idaho's put a sign like drinking water here and it's just water coming out of the ground. So why is that safe versus water that's, you know, in a stream? Yeah, so hopefully if if the local authorities are, you know, managing that, that they are, you know, monitoring its quality and there's some data behind it, right? So uh, because, you know, uh, you, you can drink, plenty of people drink uh, groundwater in, in this country, um, you know, w- with, you know, some hopefully some sort of treatment at their in their households, but it's not it's not required or regulated, et cetera. Um, so so, you know, there is that, you know, um, that practice of drinking uh, untreated groundwater. But clearly, um, microbes can, you know, can uh, from from surface contamination can get into the ground, can get into that water, you, you know, uh, unless it's disinfected or otherwise, you know, treated to make it safe. There's always back to that, you know, that, that point we made earlier, you really can't 100% say that that water is safe from, from microbes and um, uh Unless it's, unless it's treated, unless there's some treatment that you're doing. Now, if if, there, if it's being monitored for quality, then you know someone can say, look, you know, we're monitoring it, and then in general, this is pretty good water, so you can have confidence, you know, mm-hmm. in it. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that's occurring there in those kinds of situations. Gotcha. Okay. Hmm. So this will probably kind of summarize and tie together several different components of the discussion we've already had, but. Uh, and again, I'm not asking you to be mountain man here, but what are some things to think through if in a worst case scenario, you're in, you know, a backcountry or mountain setting and you just flat out don't have filtration or purification to use, how would you find and assess what is the safest water to drink or at least some of those considerations, right? And I know this is very theoretical. I just want to use this question to highlight and summarize some of the things to help us make decisions on w- water sources, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so if someone's in a difficult situation like that, and I hope they aren't, um, you know, I guess the important thing, uh, you know, from a relative risk perspective is to stay hydrated. Um, so, you know, even if you can't treat the water effectively, uh, to, to ensure its safety, it's important to stay hydrated, um, to be, to be, you know, to be healthy. Um, and, to, you know, uh, so the general principles though, if you're in that kind of pinch where you don't have a way to make, you know, water safe by treating it, um, you know, I think general principles, you know, are to look for water that's not cloudy or colored, um, and that is flowing, um, so not stagnant water. Um, so generally speaking, you know, it's good for people not to use stagnant water, even if you're, even if you're filtering and treating water, stagnant water and cloudy water are, are problematic for effective treatment. Um, you know, and, and also, you know, basically trying to reduce the uh, chances of particles and sediment from getting into the water. So not kicking up sediment and, you know, collecting water from just below the water surface, but not, you know, near, near the bottom. So just try to, you know, get as little stuff in that water as possible. Um, 
a lot of times people think about, hey, can I use my T-shirt or other kind of, you know, cloth or towel and filter the water through there. And really, you know, that might get some large particles out and things like that. But all the things that are probably, you know, at risk of, you know, you getting sick from. So the microbes and then very small particles, they're probably going to pass through, you know, unless you're doing some kind of coagulation or flocculation. And there are some chemical products out there that might, you know, say they can do that. Unless you're doing that, you're not getting all that other stuff out that can flow through those kind of cloth, um, you know, filters. Um, so I hope people are never in that situation because really, um, you know, it's, it's a clear, you know, it's just important to be prepared. Uh, so I'd say, you know, it, to reduce the chances of, you know, not being able to make, you know, safe water safe when you're, when you're, uh, you know, hiking, hunting and, you know, enjoying the back country, it's just important for people to have a plan, uh, including a backup plan, uh, to make water safe. So you might have a, a, a first line, you know, plan for, Hey, this is what I'm going to use. But if that fails for some reason, you know, have, have, have another, uh, option uh, to make water safe, whether it's, you know, tablets or drops or things like that. Hmm. Go ahead, Steve. Boiling water. We, I think we were going to talk about that. Oh, um, correct. Yeah. The dirt, like duration of boiling. You know, I think I've always heard get to boil and then for five minutes until it's truly safe. But I think sometimes in the field, if, if I boiled water, I just like boil it and let it go for 20 seconds and then call it good. Um, so is there once it's boiling, does it, you know, does it truly need to be for five minutes? What's the kind of standard there? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that about boiling because, you know, that is another option. Um, so, you know, boiling has very high effectiveness in killing all, all pathogens, parasites, viruses, and bacteria. Um, now, now, CDC guidance actually is um, that water should be brought to a roll, rolling boil um, for one minute. Um, and allowed to cool. So, so that's where we fall now. Now that's general, that's, you know, kind of sea level, you know, uh, um, guidance there. So we, you know, clearly, right. What water boils at a lower temperature at higher altitudes. Um, and so the way we've put it in our guidance on our website, that at altitudes greater than around, uh, say 6,500 feet or 2000 meters, we recommend boiling water for three minutes. So, so we don't really, um, um, I guess if you get to higher elevations, you can do the math and there are, you know, ways to convert that. Uh, what is it uh, for, you know, what the boiling point decreases by 0.5 degrees C for every 500 feet or whatever, whatever that is. So I'm, I'm sure if you were at really high level elevations, you might want to boil for even longer than three minutes. Okay. Huh. Good to know. Yeah. Very good. It sounds to me, you know, going back to your recommendations on kind of finding assessing water sources and talking about avoiding discoloration, particles, you know, looking at flowing sources, et cetera. From what we've talked about with the different treatment methods, that, that applies kind of equally to all of them, right? So chemicals are going to be more effective in a cleaner water source. Filters are going to be more effective and less likely to clog with a cleaner water source. Ultraviolet is going to be more effective uh, when it's not fighting through particles to treat the water source. So, you know, it, it's always been kind of common sense. And I've always kind of wondered, well, is there a treatment or filtration method that is more effective on dirtier water sources? But it sounds like that they all have some challenges if you are dealing with discoloration and particles and things of that nature. I think that's true. Uh, I would say, and this is broad, um, but, you know, 
if, if you've got lower quality water, particles, cloudiness, color, et cetera, UV is at risk of failing, period, right? So chemical disinfection kind of is at risk of failing because all that other stuff um, combines with your disinfectant and doesn't, you know, so the germs never get exposed to it. At least with a filter, um, the, it's not a risk of failing unless, you know, it clogs. Uh, but that's not failure. That's just lack of, you know, producing water. It's not that the water that comes out is, is not, has not been filtered effectively. So I would say amongst those, you might, you know, say, hey, you know, the, the relying on filtration is, is, um, is, is a good idea. If you've got a filter, of course, you know, that, you know, many of these, as we noted before, viruses are very small, bacteria are very small, can get through a lot of filters. So, so chemical disinfectants are still part of that kind of combined treatment idea. So I'm using a filter and I'm really relying on that for doing all the heavy lifting of, of, of treating this water. But I'm recognizing that unless I've got this, some really fancy high-end uh, purifying water filter that removes viruses, I'm still gonna wanna use a chemical disinfectant or other, maybe UV, uh, to, to, to get those, those, uh, those germs that can pass through. Got it, yeah, that's a good distinction. The the risks, so take that Sawyer, again, I'm just using this hypothetically as an example and also because I have a lot of personal experience with it. We talked about it had that 0.1 micron. Any risks that can get beyond that, uh, that are smaller than the 0.1 micron, are those, whatever those risks are, you can <laughs> remind me or clarify that, are those more probable or prevalent in certain areas or would those specific risks maybe less probable or less prevalent in the backcountry context, for example? So in general, again, I know we can't say in absolutes, but is a, that point mic, point 0.1 micron filtration probably sufficient for what is likely to be encountered in certain contexts? In our case, call it, you know, these mountain contexts or backcountry contexts. Yeah, so... So, right, so 0.1 microns, that's going to be, should be effective for removing bacteria and parasites. And bacteria and parasites um, can, um, you know, certainly um, be from, you know, uh, human contamination or animal contamination. So animals can carry those, you know, parasites and bacteria. So in a lot of those settings that you're talking about, backcountry, et cetera, you might have concern about animals as well as, you know, especially if people aren't around, you, you may be worrying about animals. Uh, now viruses will pass through those, you know, 0.1 micron filters. Um, um, and so, however, you know, a lot of viruses, one of the hallmarks of viruses is that it kind of, um, as we call them host specific. So they might be, you know, it's not hundred percent, but you know, they might you know, primarily infect uh, people, uh, versus animals. Um, and then the ones that affect animals aren't infectious for, for people. So in some cases, this is real broad, you know, that, you know, you might have less risk uh, with a 0.1 micron filter. Yeah, sure, some viruses get through, but they might, you know, unless you've got human contamination in the area, if it's just animals, you're probably not um, at risk for, for any viruses that might be in, you know, poop from animals for, for in, in many cases. So, so I think, so that's a kind of a relative risk, um, you know, uh, perspective there. Now also recognizing though, that there are any chemicals, right? Um, that might be in the water, uh, heavy metals, toxins, et cetera. Those will also go through a 0.1 micron filter. But 
you know, I think in many areas, many, many, uh, there's not much you can do about those because I don't know that there are portable water filters that are really going to remove harmful chemicals or toxins. So, so, you know, I don't, I don't know there's much you can do about that. Random question. Uh, I was up in Alaska last year on a hunt and uh, I, I assume it was iron that was in the water, just really red. Um, yeah, I think it was just iron, right? It was really red soil. The, the water would be red if you poured it into a, um, a clear bag. I was using this platypus bag uh, and it definitely had that kind of irony taste. Is that at dangerous levels um, or is that totally, you know what I mean? We just filtered it and drank it, but it just, it just tasted like just iron. Um, and so, it, but it was in this where we were camped. It was kind of unavoidable to, to get water that wasn't, you know, didn't have that in it. Yeah, I think EPA probably for, you know, for public water systems has um, some standards on, on iron uh, in water that, that if anybody's really interested, they can kind of go and look at that and go, okay, if it's above this, then, you know, that might be, might, might be a concern. Um, so, and, and I, I'm probably not as a familiar with sort of the med, any kind of other medical issues that might be um uh, associated with, you know, drinking really high iron content of water. Probably though, if you were trying to filter that water, it would clog a uh, right. filter and mess them up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Vince, is there anything, I feel like we've covered pretty much everything I wanted to cover and, and I've learned a lot for sure. Are you, is there anything on your mind or that you would want hunters, outdoorsmen to know that we haven't covered or to maybe consider? Yeah, no, this has been a great conversation. I'm really um, glad to have the opportunity to, to talk with you, with you all. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, for us, it's just, you know, um, the, the, main, the main idea is that it's really important to be prepared and have a plan for, for making water safe when you're, when you're enjoying the great outdoors, whatever you're doing, camping, hiking, hunting, uh, et cetera. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and having a... Because you just you just can't look at water, even snow, et cetera, you know, anything that you might want to, uh, you know, make into, into drinking water. You just can't look at it and say, ah, it looks good to me. I'm just, you know, uh, it's safe. Uh, you can't be 100 percent certain. Um, and I know there's a lot of stuff that factors into that. So I think having a plan for just being prepared to make water safe, whatever the methods are that that, uh, that people feel comfortable using is just a, it's just a good idea. Well, I hope you guys learned as much as I did from that conversation. If you're looking for more resources, check out the show description, and we have a couple links where you guys can dive deeper on this topic as well. Don't forget, we got the podcast archive with 400 plus episodes at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast, or go to exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter if you want to become an exo insider. And we essentially send you a weekly email uh, with podcast updates, but much more. So videos, articles, product releases, things like that. And once again, you can become an XO Insider for free at exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter. We'll talk to you soon. Join us again for the next episode. Hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive the next episode automatically.